I had asked Tim if I could give him a, you know, a week off um, a, probably about a month and a half ago. I just, uh, you know, he preaches every week and he's a full-time, full-time job like, like a lot of us are. So uh, and I, when he told me that he was going to be in the book of John, I was like, wow, awesome. Um, because there was a, a section of the book of John that I just felt of late that I was really compelled uh, to, to speak from. Uh, that I think is really relevant to what's going on in in our in our society right now, and how we as a church uh, ought to be uh, ought to be operating. And uh, basically, it's it's from the last words of Jesus that he's giving to his disciples. And so I'm going to go through a whole bunch of scripture t- uh, today, and I, it's not going to be death by PowerPoint, uh, hopefully. But what I what I want to do is I'm going to walk you through uh, John chapter 13 through 17. Um, and so I'm not going to read five chapters, don't worry, but I'm going to read excerpts of it. So I'm going to share screen here. Okay, you guys, can you see my, my screen? Okay, great. So this section culminates, uh, John chapter 13 through 17 culminates in chapter 17, which is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And so, uh, most of you have probably read through that uh, that chapter, and it's an incredible, an incredible chapter of Jesus praying to the Father on our behalf. But what I wanted to do was to give context that led up to that prayer um, that night, um, because these chapters in the Book of John represent uh, thirteen through seventeen, and, and even into eighteen, represent basically three or four hours in the life of Jesus. So it is a condensed. Uh, you know, account of what was going on that night in uh, in the ministry of Jesus, and so it was uh, called in church in church history. That night was called Monday Thursday, and even growing up as a Lutheran, um, we celebrated Monday Thursday with the service, and other churches call it Holy Thursday. But basically, this is the night that Jesus was betrayed, and uh, so a lot went on that night. And uh, so I, to give context to where I wanted to spend some time in John 17, I want, I want to walk through what's happening in the dialogue leading up to that to give it appropriate context. Um, before, before I get into the text, uh, I don't know if maybe it's hard to see on Zoom, but raise your hand if you, has anybody ever seen the, the show Alone? Um, it's the, that reality show that uh, Katarina and Christina and I have been watching it. It's a, basically a reality show where these survivalists are dropped in alone into this remote location. And like 10 of them are put like, you know, eight miles apart each. But basically they have to live off the land and survive off the land. And so uh, these, these people are pr- pretty hardcore. But, you know, they're like, oh, that's a green onion. I'm going to eat that. That's great. And, you know, has a high vi- amount of vitamin C. Oh, oh, great. I just killed a chipmunk. It's got three ounces of meat. <laughs> but basically, they're living off of the land. And it's a survival challenge to see who can stay the longest uh, alone um, and to survive out there. And more often than not, the thing that makes them tap out, uh, say, okay, I got to go home. They basically have a bat phone they can pick up and call and say, I'm out. Uh, after several weeks, typically, what usually makes them tap out is not feeling of hunger, but it's the feeling of loneliness and aching for um, other people. So like being alone, it, it's, it is a real, um, it's like a real psychological experiment to see how long people can go without other people. And I, I thought that was interesting in the light of uh, reading through this text several times this week. It's like, you know, God in the garden said, it's not, 
uh, good for man to be alone, right? And we're not meant to be alone. We're meant to be united with other people. And so I think that's a lot, a lot of the context. It's kind of a helpful word picture of what's going on in these, in these chapters. So I'm going to go to the next slide here. So that night, chapter 13, it starts out with, um, you guys still see my slide? Great. So it starts out with an account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So what's happening? Jesus and his disciples arrive at the upper room. It's the night of the Passover. Okay, so they're assembling to share this meal. And so when you think about it, God is, you know, he's the God of the universe. He knows what's going to happen to him. He's not only aware of, but he's in control of all of the events of that night. <laughs> Um, and so everything that he is, has done in his entire life has been intentional. But when you think about what's happening the night before he knows he's going to be killed, this is probably six in the evening on Thursday, he's going to be dead at 3 PM the next day. And he knows this. And so what does he prioritize, right? Like what kind of message is he prioritizing that he wants to communicate with his followers? What, what does he want to leave them with? Um, so with that in mind, we go into the section of the account. It's like he decides to wash the disciples' feet. And I'm going to read just quickly from that passage. He said, when, they when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a service not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So, so it's the evening of the Passover. He, they're about to celebrate this meal, this meal that is celebrating <laughs> the events that he orchestrated back in the book of Exodus, right? and the incredible deliverance of the people of Egypt when the angel of death passed over the Jewish homes uh, that were sprinkled with the blood of the unblemished lamb. And he took the firstborn son of the Egyptians, uh, even down to uh, the, the livestock. So, and that was an incredible event that sparked the, um, the departure of the, of the Israelites from slavery. So that celebration is going on and and so the God of the universe is there, the one that orchestrated the, that event way back then. He's here orchestrating the events of even his own, this whole, the whole evening. And he knows what's going to happen. And what does he prioritize? Getting dirty and, and drying the, the uh, newly washed feet that he just scrubbed with his own hands, with his own garment. And he's the one person in the universe that deserves worship and glory. And yet he is the one that decides to make an example to serve other people in humility, being willing to get dirty um, and involved in other people's lives as a sign of love for one another. And even saying like no servants greater than his master. So if, if Jesus was to do this or master serve others, then we should be doing the same. So that's an incredible just symbol for us to just point to. It's like, wow, if Jesus was willing to do that, what should we be thinking about? And so the next thing that it goes into in the passage is he, he celebrates the Passover. Now, interestingly, in the book of John, there's not a lot that he's, he talks about, about the events over that 
that Last Supper. In other Gospels, it talks in much more detail. Um, in the book of Luke, it talks about, I've, I've greatly desired to share this meal with you before I go suffer. So he's, he's setting the context that I'm going to go suffer. And it's a kind of, there's a, a lot of gravity to the situation there. This isn't just a happy-go-lucky meal. And, you know, he's just desiring to share this meal with his, his disciples. The one thing that he does do is in the book of John that John records is that um, he tells Judas, he's basically said, one's going to betray me. And, um, and he tells Judas to go take care of what he needs to take care of. And at the time, the disciples didn't put two and two together uh, that Judas was actually going to go betray him. They thought uh, that maybe he had to go do an errand for Jesus because um, Judas held on to the money. So, so anyway, so he's washed their feet. He's sharing the, the Passover meal with them. And then he goes into a passage, which it's, it's new commandment. Uh, that he gives to his disciples. So in the flow of conversation, he's washed their feet, he's celebrating this meal, and he's saying, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So he just demonstrated what that love looks like physically, right? He, by washing their feet. And he also is demonstrating what love for one another even looks like. Just to, he's like, I've earnestly desired to share this meal with you, you know, before I go suffer. Like he's showing like love is not just something that happens from afar. It's something that you do intentionally with other people. And so he's, he's given us an, an incredible examples of what, of what love looks like. And so the, the flow goes on to the, then he makes a declaration about himself as being the way, the truth and the life. And so how does that fit in? So it keeps flowing. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, why would their hearts be troubled? Because he just told them that he was going to suffer, right? And so in the dialogue, we don't have every single word that they talked about at the table, but you know, it's, basically, it's clear that Jesus, what he's been talking about in his ministry, especially of late, is that he's going to go suffer and die. So he's saying, don't let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe, so, believe also in me. My father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way to where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So... The language that he uses here is really interesting. It's uh, he actually is borrowing from the ver the verbiage that a like a betrothed man would say to his fiance that he's going to go prepare a place for them, and basically what that means is that the the future husband, the one that is now engaged to the future bride in this Jewish culture, is saying, "I'm going to go prepare a place for you. It's going to be a place of shelter, a place of provision. It's going to be a place that we will build our home together," and. Jesus is using that language, interestingly, and in saying this to his bride, the church. And so he is, he is borrowing from that language very, very intentionally, saying, I'm going to go prepare a place. But remember, he knows he's going to be betrayed and he's going to, be, and he's going to die the next day. And he, he knew he's going to be raised on the third day, coming back from, the life, uh, from death into life. But when he uses the term, I am the way and the truth and the life, he's not saying, yeah, for the next, you know, 20 hours or so while I'm alive, I'm the way. He's saying, 
she says, no, I am the way and the truth and the life. It's present tense. It's something that is for all eternity. He is the one and only way to the Father. So he, at the end of this little passage, he says, rise, let us, let us leave from here. And so he basically leaves supper with his disciples and heads out. And so you can kind of picture, all right, they're disassembling from the table and they're starting to go out. And we all know where he ended up that night, which was at the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it seems like he's walking and talking uh, with the disciples and teaching them as they're heading towards the, towards the garden. Because it goes into the really you know, famous passage, uh, I'm sure you've all read, about the vine and the branches in, in chapter, chapter 15. Just going to read a little, little portion of it. Says, I am the true vine, and my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burnt. So more than likely, you know, he is on the way over to the garden. He's probably passing some, some vines, some vineyards. I'm not sure exactly what the topography is between the upper room and over there, but basically it's a very agricultural area. And he's, given this metaphor about being the vine and the branches. So he himself is declaring, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And so he is the source of life. So if you are a branch and you try to grow fruit, being cut off from the vine, it's impossible. Uh, it's kind of like if we try to like light a light bulb and just hold it in our hands, it's not gonna, it's not gonna turn on. The light bulb has to be plugged into the source of electricity through the lamp and then it produces light. So in a similar way, we if we try to, on our own, create these good good works, create this fruit, apart from being attached to the vine and being attached to Christ, it's fruitless. Ultimately, it's fruitless. And, and many times, if we try to do it in our own flesh, if we try to do all these good works uh, without being tied into the vine and we run out of gas, because it may get exhausted, um, I think we, we kind of know what that feels like if we're operating on the flesh. But if we're abiding in him, like he's commanding us to be being empowered by his spirit, then the works overflow naturally, just as fruit is naturally produced by a healthy vine. So where are we? He's washed their feet. He's celebrated the Passover with them. He's given this new commandment to love one another exclusively through him. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and to be plugged into him as the vine, as the source of life. But then he makes a, a radical statement here which in the, in the context of all world religions is absolutely radical. <laughs> he calls the disciples his friends. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master's doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. And if you think about it, like what other, what other quote, system allows for a God to actually be friends with his creation? Uh, friendship is a two-way relationship. Uh, we don't read about the friendship of Allah. It's a distant, remote God in the world of Islam. And, you know, we don't, uh, you don't have a friendship relationship with Shiva or any of the, the Hindu, Hindu gods. Um, it's, you know, they're whimsical, erratic gods that you have to kind of placate and give offerings to. And hopefully that they'll, 
they'll take your side. No, he's actually called us friends. And he's not only called the disciples their friends, but if we once we read into chapter 17, he's saying by proxy, those who would come after the disciples, those who would believe their word, and that's us, he's calling us friends. So it's a pretty awesome, radical thing to think about that's worthy of a lifetime of study, uh, just the joy that that should bring, being friends with God. But then it takes a little bit of a turn. Then it's getting real. He says, you know, the world's going to hate us. So it's almost like he's empowering. He's, he's getting people, his disciples, ready for the fact, like with all this love language and fellowship language and exclusivity language, he's promising that the world's going to hate us. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. So he's, it's getting real, right, with his disciples. He is, uh, he's, he's telling them um, that they're going to be hated. And in our own, in our own context, right, it's the world, the world does hate the message of Christ. Um, you know, it's the, the message of the cross is an offense. If, if we are bold and, and show our allegiance to Christ, the world ultimately will hate us, the world system. The world doesn't like being told that they're not righteous in and of themselves and that they need a savior. That's an offense, right? We don't have to be offensive, but that is ultimately an offense to the world, and so they will hate us for it. But the good news is that a second promise is made by God. It's promised that well, the world will hate us, but he promised that he would send his spirit. He says, but when the helper comes, this is the spirit of God, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So this is, a, this is an incredible promise, and it comes, it comes to pass when he sends the Holy Spirit on Pentecost uh, after he rises from the dead. And the, you know, the, the spirit of God is he strengthens us and convinces us and enables us to do the work of ministry. And he's our comforter. Um, so that's an incredible promise with the, in light of the fact that the world's going to hate us. But it gets even more real. He says uh, he promises tribulation. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So I don't know about you, you guys, but I, if, when I picture like if I was to have Jesus like sitting at the dinner table and just unloading just all the pressures and all the things of this world, the things that are wrong and, and the things that are affecting me personally, if I was to unload on him and if he's like, you know what, take heart, I've overcome the world, I think that would make all the difference. It would be like, yes, you're right. Um, and the good news is that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Take heart. I have overcome the world he has. Um, so that's an incredible promise that he's, he's given us. So that's the background going into uh, chapter 17, this high priestly prayer. So he gives all these examples of love. He, he pr makes three promises that the world's going to hate us, but he's going to send the spirit. And there's a promise of tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And up to now, he's been talking exclusively to the disciples. So this has been a dialogue between him and his followers. 
But then in chapter 17, it pivots. He goes into the high priestly prayer. And at this point, Jesus is talking exclusively to the Father, and we get to eavesdrop in on it. So I'm hoping that this, the background I gave you gives you kind of a, a sense of the context of Jesus is prioritizing telling his disciples really what love looks like. He's shown it. He has communicated it. He's talking about what it looks like to be plugged into him and not being working on our own, on our own um, energy. We've got to be plugged into, our fruit will come being plugged into the actual vine. That's being Jesus. And we're going to need that because the world's going to hate us. We will send the spirit and that spirit will comfort us through our tribulation. So we should take heart. So now we get to listen in on his prayer to the father. And I'm going to read through, through the whole prayer. Um, I'll try to read through it slowly. So it kind of soaks in, but um, why is it called the high priestly prayer? It's not called that specifically in the text, but the, the role that Jesus is operating in is classically known in Christian theology as uh, Jesus is operating as the priest. There's three roles, three offices that he took here on earth, the, the prophet, priest, and king. And, you know, as prophet, he spoke for God uh, to the people. As king, he fulfilled the Davidic covenant that, that God made with David that said, I will uh, establish your throne forever and ever. He's going to put one that would be a descendant of David on the throne, and he would rule and reign forever and ever. And that's exactly what Jesus, uh, what happened with Jesus. He was the one that was given that authority. But the second office, that role of priest, is an intermediary between man and God. And so classically in the Old Testament, the priest was the one who would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to God, the Father. And so now in Jesus's office, he, is, he has stepped into that role as the, as the absolute high priest, the, the one high priest that would be the last part of that system because he's going to obliterate it. He's going to, through his death and burial and resurrection, he's going to obliterate the need for the priesthood and establish a direct connection to God through all the, from all the believers directly to the Father. So it's in that, it's in that context I just want to read through what Jesus is praise on our behalf. And there's a couple things that I have kind of highlighted in italics through the text so you can get a sense of the two main things that are the thrusts of what he's trying to put forward. Number one, it's all about glory. And number two, it's all about unity. And so the glory achieved through the unity of the believers. I'm going to read through it. He said, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So he's spoken these words that were in the previous chapters, right? So all of these commandments, right? But he's, now he's lifted his eyes to heaven. He's speaking. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Interestingly, he's praying, but he refers to himself in the third person. He's saying that you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, the Messiah whom you've sent. It's almost like it's such a, it's such a grand prayer that he's actually referring to himself in this office that he's performing right now as the Messiah in the third person. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and that you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 
Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. So he's praying for his church here, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas, and this is before Judas even comes to him in the garden. He knows exactly what's happening. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Last page. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe them, believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. Seems to be uh, really prioritizing unity, right? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So like I said, you know, clearly throughout that chapter, that prayer, Jesus on our behalf to the Father, it's just focused on those two things. It's glory and unity, the, the, the oneness of the church. And so uh, why does this matter? So I think, I think for us, so we've, we've learned through the previous few chapters what love looks like and the grounding of love within the truth and being plugged into uh, being plugged into the vine, being Jesus himself, and as the only way to the Father. And so, because he promised that hardship was coming, that the world would hate us, that there would be tribulation, and so he's praying uh, not only for the Spirit to comfort them, but also that they would be unified in the truth. And so, and so he's showing what unity looks like uh, by washing each other's feet, by loving one another, and doing this around the unity of the gospel. So here, in our own situation here in America and even around the world, it's uh, but especially here in America, like we don't really know true persecution yet for our faith, though we can feel the pressure coming, but we don't really know what it's like um, compared to our brothers and sisters around the world. But, but even so, when we do go through trials, we all have legitimate trials, and we've been given the gift of the church to endure these, these trials together, right? And so... If we try to go through them on our own, we're easy pickings for the, the enemy. There's nothing 
there's nothing that on your own that you can just kind of wump it up and say, yeah, I, I got this. And ultimately, um, to be able to be able to be successful um, in, in fighting off the doubts and the fears and the worries and the persecution and the pressures. But when we reach out to a Christian brother, the beauty of the church is the unity that we can tap into. Reach out to a Christian brother or sister and, and describe what's going on, invite them into this trial to walk with us. And the power that can come through that is immeasurable. Just linking arms with a fellow believer to walk through your trials makes all the difference. And that's one of the things I love so much about our fellowship. We are small enough to be involved in each other's lives. You know, we're, it's not an audience, right? We're, we're a body. And I just, I just love that. And so, but, you know, ultimately coming together around some kind of secular thing, like a community social club is one thing, but the richness of life that comes from like uniting around the mission of the gospel is, is the highest, the highest calling that we can ever have. Right. And so th but this is why Jesus washed the disciples feet. And this is why he gained the command to love one another. And, and he sent the spirit to empower us. This is why he said to stay, stay rooted in the living vine being, being himself. Right. So how does this manifest in our daily lives, especially with like the crazy disunity and disintegration that's going on in our, this, our society right now? I, I, I think, I think that as the church, you know, we can learn from what Jesus has said over these past four chapters. You know, we have the ability to serve one another and to love one another. And that's a sharp contrast to the craziness and divisiveness that's going on. Uh, we can speak love into a situation. We can serve one another. We can, we can be graceful. Uh, we can you know, think before we speak or think before we type, right? To support each other, to you know, link arms when need, needs arise. I love that uh, you know, just in our own body, we've had uh, just a healthy uh, number of gifts to the Benevolence Fund, which has been great. And that's been able to go directly into meeting, meeting real needs. And I, I, I think that's, that is what is such an incredible testimony to what the church is all about. And it, and it sets an example for the world. So I think this unity can be an infectious and really be a sharp contrast to you know, the, the craziness that's going on around us. And so, and in the big picture of, of the kingdom and the course of history, what is, what did Christ come to do? It's really to, it's the grand narrative of he was going to be bringing all the nations under his authority, you know, undoing what happened at Babel, right? He's where the nations were scattered. He, the beauty of the gospel is that it is for every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and uh, and it's our responsibility to go and make disciples. And so it's us all under Christ's authority, and our it's really, so it's our job is to link arms with our fellow believers around this truth of the gospel, and to be in, obedient to the call, um, to, and really to live our lives intentionally to fulfill that mandate. So um, I'm going to pray, and I would just. Uh, I would just pray that that desire would be on all of our hearts in order to you know, live out exactly what uh, Jesus prayed for us in John 17, uh, to live out the unity of the believers and to ultimately bring God glory through our lives. So uh, let's pray. I, Father, I would say we, we need you. We, uh, we're nothing without you. We we know that you are the vine and we're the branches. And if we are cut off from the, the vine, that we will bear no fruit. But Lord, you've given us your spirit. And even though trials come, even though there's craziness in the world, Lord, we know that you said, take heart, I've overcome the world. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for our church. I thank you for the technology of Zoom that we can, we can gather. But Lord, we do pray uh, once again to be able to unite in person 
and what a what a glorious uh, reunion that's going to be. But in the meantime, just make our hearts truly uh, tenderized to the needs around us and uh, make us one as you are in the Father and the Father's in you. Make us make us one so that we would be um, we would represent your kingdom and your glory well to the earth, Lord. So in Jesus' name.